Genesis 12, verse 10 through 20 say this. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it guides us. It teaches us, Lord, not just the way life works best, Lord, but it teaches us who you are and how good you are. That even, Lord, when we get it wrong, you still somehow get it right. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us today. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, Lord. No one wants to hear from a man. We want to hear from our Lord and Savior. We want to hear from your spirit today. And so, God, would you teach, would you speak, and Holy Spirit, would you cause us to desire to obey your word today, Lord, to cast off fear and to trust in the God who saves. And so, Lord, we look to you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, fear makes people do crazy things. I can say with almost 100% certainty that none of my children on an ordinary day would seek to pick a fight with someone four times their size. But fear makes you do crazy things. Several years ago, my oldest son was probably about seven or eight years old. We were staying at my in-law's house after some function. We were staying the night there and we were getting the kids ready for bed. And my wife's family likes to, uh, they like to prank each other. They like to scare each other. They like to do little things to just, you know, just bring excitement into life that it wasn't there previously. And my brother-in-law had recently purchased a mask. It was a terrifying mask. It was not a grotesque mask. It was not a demonic mask. It was an uncanny, uh, uh, creepy old man mask that looked real enough to get you to wonder and just something a little bit off for it to be absolutely terrifying. And so I'm standing in the house and I see, you know, something pass by a window outside and 
you know, kind of startled me. And then my brother-in-law walks into the house and I'm, you know, jump back, but then I've realized what's going on. And I'm like, this is going to be good. We're going to see what happens here. And so my brother-in-law walks down the hall wearing this mask. And the first person that he encounters is my son. My son walks out of a bedroom and sees him. We all have that fight or flight response, right? That, that rush of adrenaline, that, that energy that comes from nowhere that tells you, you either have got to bail or you've got to throw down now. And so in that moment, not knowing what my son would do, he screams bloody murder, jumps and repeatedly pelts his uncle with fists. If you've ever played the old Mike Tyson's punch out game and little Mac, you press the star button and he leaves his feet and just throws haymakers. This is my son just over and over again, fighting for his life. And at first I was like, I thought he was playing along. I thought he knew what was going on and he was just taking it too far. But then I realized he was really scared. And so after, you know, we comforted him and, 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 and like the adrenaline, you know, we're kind of settling down in my flesh, this sense of pride just welled up in me. I don't condone violence. I'm not on board with that. But there was something that welled up in me that when, when push came to shove, okay, he protected. When, when he thought that he was in danger, he did something absolutely crazy and took on some random stranger that he thought in in the house. Fear makes us do crazy things. Now, there's a lot of crazy in the world today. Okay, there's a lot of madness in the world today. There's, it's confusing. Things don't make sense. There's violence in the world today. But what we need to recognize is that much of the crazy in the world today comes from fear. Fear makes us do crazy things. And there's a lot of fear in the world today. There's a lot of real concern for survival, whether it's from things like earthquakes and hurricanes and and floods and fires and war and all of these things. There's real concern for survival today, but there's also concern for things that aren't necessarily matters of survival, but they're matters of the the survival of our way of life. They're they're matters of, of survival of our identity, our comforts, our peace, the things that we expect, our lifestyles, our dreams. We see lots of things in the world today threatening these dreams, and nobody is exempt from these fears. And these fears make us do things that we never thought we'd do. And what our hearts need to hear today, or what our hearts need to hear in times of fear and in times of failure, is that we don't need to fight. We don't need to flee. But we need to trust in the faithfulness of God. See, our text says that there was a famine in the land. Okay, famines in the ancient world could cause 
disaster could result in in tremendous loss of life. Not even in the, the far ancient world, but in the relatively recent past. In the, the Irish potato famine in the mid-19th century resulted in what is estimated to be one million deaths in Ireland in a period of, I think, five to seven years. It was one-eighth of Ireland's population Imagine five to seven years, 2,000 people in Carpinteria die for lack of food. There's a massive impact. You see, God had called Abram to leave his land, to leave his family, to leave his place of security, his support system, and go into the promised land of Canaan. And so here's Abram following God. Following God into the promised land, into the promised blessing. And that promised land can't support him, can't sustain him or his family. God says, leave this, go into the place I'll show you. He goes into the place that he shows him. There's nothing there for him. There's a famine in the land. And so Abram, rather than inquiring of God, rather than asking God, okay, Lord, you called me here. What do I do? Abram runs to the world for help. Abram bails on the land. He leaves the promised land. He leaves the land that God told him to go to, and he goes to Egypt. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Egypt is uh, the place of worldly comforts. It's the place of plentiful wealth and resources and, and pleasures. Egypt continues to be the place throughout the Old Testament where God's people are tempted to run to in their time of need. Whether it's times of famine, there will be more famines in the Bible, in the land, and God's people will be tempted to go to Egypt because Egypt was more drought-tolerant than the land of Canaan because of the Nile River that regularly overflowed its banks and watered the the, the land. And so they had food oftentimes when the rest of the known world didn't. And so they would go there in times of famine. They would also go to Egypt in times of war because Egypt had an abundance of horses and chariots. They were a great military strength. And so the people of Israel would seek to create allies with Egypt instead of trusting in God. Egypt was a world superpower. And so it was tempting for Israel to run to those that they could see, run to those that they could engage with, run to those who seemed to have the things that they needed in their time of need instead of turning to God. And so Abram leaves. He leaves Canaan. He goes to Egypt. But along the way to Egypt, another fear strikes Abram. His wife, Sarai, is gorgeous. She's she's beautiful. And so Abram is terrified that the Egyptians are going to see her. And in their lust for her, they're going to kill Abram and take her for themselves. And so he already believes he can't trust God. Abram does, and so he goes to Egypt, but now he can't even trust Egypt. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He, he, he comes up with this genius plan, and it really is quite genius. He tells his wife, Sarah, he says, say that you are my sister. Now, this isn't a flat-out lie. 
Can we find out in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, that Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister, which makes it a half-truth. See, Abram thinks he's got the key to something. Oh, you are technically my sister. They had the same father. Now, as much as that offends our sensibilities today, it was not uncommon in the ancient world. And so Abram takes advantage of this relational distinction, says, say that you are my sister. And this plan is genius because look, if in a world of arranged marriages, where marriages were not arranged based on love, they were arranged based on each family's desire to either maintain or increase their social status or their economic position as a family. And so without Sarai's father in the picture, Abram, as her brother, was no longer a barrier between the Egyptians and their lust for Sarai, but he is actually has the power to make a marriage happen. He now becomes the conduit through which they can negotiate and arrange a marriage with Sarai. It actually gives Abram tremendous power to eventually, regardless of what happens, turn down any potential suitor. It actually puts Abram in a position to deny marriages and protect his wife. However, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Abram does not realize that quite possibly the potential suitor, the would-be husband, could be Pharaoh himself. See, Pharaoh has taken a liking to Sarai. Pharaoh is the one man with such status, such clout, such authority and power, and has the ability to pay such a bride price that no brother in his right mind in this day would not accept and sell his sister off into marriage to Pharaoh. Anyone who denies Pharaoh could not do so without raising suspicion. And so Abram's in a tough spot. Either perpetuate the lie and protect himself or sell his wife into the arms of another man. And so Abram sells his wife into the arms of another man. And so what began as fear and self-preservation became a deception, a half-truth that ultimately snowballs and results in Abram doing something that he never thought he would do. See, in the previous passage that we read last week, if you haven't weren't here for that, I want to encourage you to go back and and, and listen to that sermon. In this previous passage from last week, Abram is a model of faith. God calls him to leave everything behind, and he does. He obeys. But here we see in Abram just one more example of humanity's failure to trust God. And as much as he was faithful and trusted God, 
to bless him, to make him a great nation, to give him the promised land, to give him a great family, to, to, to make him a blessing to all of the families of the earth. Abram fails to tr- trust God and the, the results are catastrophic. See, Abram had the promises that God had given him and he trusted God enough to go into the land, but apparently he does not trust God enough to remain faithful in the land when times are tough. And so we will all experience temptations and, and failures in our lives, failures to trust God's promises. And when these temptations come, the question for us is, will we hold on to the promises of God or will we pawn them off for a temporary fix? Will we hold on to the thing that God has given us that we know is valuable, that we believe is sure and can be trusted? Or will we trade that thing away for the, to, to scratch that, that, that temporary itch that we're experiencing in life? Because there will be times when it's tempting to turn to the world for help. To turn to the comforts of the world, to turn to the resources of the world, to turn to its false saviors for help in our time of need. One of the ways that we do this as believers is when we experience things in the world that we don't like, we run to government and politicians to help. We believe that though we have begun this life of faith in Christ, that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, yet when we experience things in this world we don't like, we run to politicians and political parties as our saviors. This is the thing that can change and protect my dreams. This is the thing that we can do to protect my quality of life. This is the thing that we can do to protect us. We run to Egypt. We run to the pharaohs of the world. We run to money as security. When times are hard, if I just had a little more money, if I just had a little more wealth, if I just had a few more resources, we run to sex as fulfillment. Seeking approval, seeking love, seeking someone who will care for us. And we betray ourselves into the arms of someone that has not promised to be there when we wake up. We run to substances as comfort, to career as identity. And we look in carpentry and the coastlands to lifestyle as blessing. God, I want these things. I want the ability to live this way, to live in this neighborhood, to have this house, to have these toys, to take these vacations, for people to look at me in this way. We look to all of the things of the world as Savior when God himself has saved us. We are tempted, just like Abram, to turn to the world There are times when we will be tempted to to take matters into our own hands and secure our own blessing by our own schemes to provide and protect for our own lives and our own selves. Some of us are in the throes of that right now. Scrambling. Hustling. This is what the world tells you you have to do. 
If you want to, if you want to get by, if you want to live that life, you got to hustle. You got to have side projects. You got to work 18 hour days. You've got to sacrifice family on the altar of career and finances and all of these things. You've got to do more to provide more for yourself. You have to take matters into your own hands and you've got to make it work. So for many people right now, life doesn't feel like we're experiencing God's blessings. Life is difficult. You feel maybe like you're just scraping by and you've prayed and God doesn't seem to be answering. And these aren't problems of no consequence. Many of you are experiencing real problems with real consequence, real trauma and tragedy in your life. This world is a dangerous place. It's becoming more dangerous. It's becoming harder to live, harder to survive, harder to make ends meet, harder to keep up appearances. It's becoming incredibly difficult. And I see a lot of Christians responding to the increase of, 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 of trial, the increase of difficulty, or the increase of violence, the increase of lies, the increase of, of, of oppression that we experience in the world. We see things ramping up, and I see a lot of Christians in my own heart as well. I had to take a break from the news repeatedly because I see in myself this desire to respond with fear. It's terrifying. Real problems in the world, but in our fear, when we're tempted to fight by our own strength or to flee into our own little comfort zones, our own little bubbles, we need to remember that there is a third way. We do not need to fight. We do not need to flee. We need faith. We need to trust God in faith. Hebrews 13, five through six says, keep your life free from the love of money. Stop right there. The love of money. See, money is not bad. Okay. Contrary to the misquotations of scripture that you hear, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, the, 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 the unrestrained pursuit of money, the, the placing of money at the pinnacle of our priority lists, the love of money, the worship of money, the desire for money that you would sacrifice other things, your family, your integrity, the love of money. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's right there in the word of God. Hebrews 13, five through six. And so like Abram, if you are a Christian, you have trusted enough to believe in Jesus to save you from hell and give you eternal life. Will you trust him enough to remain faithful when life gets hard? 
Abram trusted God enough to leave his life behind and go into the promised land, but he struggled to have faith to remain in the promised land when life got tough. He ran to the world. He took matters in his own hands. Will you trust him enough, not just to believe, but to remain in faith when life gets hard? When we should be turning to the Lord, we're often turning to the world. Or we're doing our darndest to save ourselves. And not only will it fail in life, but it will fail in eternity. Nothing but God himself can give you what you need today. Nothing but God himself can give you the thing that kept you awake last night. The thing that immediately began stressing you this morning. Nothing can give you what you truly need but God himself. So our problems are not merely political. It's not that we don't have political problems. They're not merely political. Okay, our problems are not merely financial or emotional or relational. Our problems are theological. We actually believe deep down, whether we say it with our mouths or, or would affirm it in our minds, we believe deep down that either God is not willing or not able to help you in your time of need. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. And so we look to other things. And look, when Christians turn to the world for help, it tells the world that Jesus actually isn't any greater than all of the things the world already has. When we look to money to save us, we tell the world, Jesus is not my greatest treasure. Jesus is not the greatest good. This other thing is because I need it to protect me. When we turn to power, when we turn to sex, when we turn to status and comfort, we tell the world that Jesus isn't enough. That for life in this difficult world, we need Jesus and everything the world already has. But if you have Jesus, you need nothing that the world already has. You have everything that you could ever have. If even the church is consumed with these things, how can we tell the world that Jesus is the greatest good and expect them to actually believe it, that the kingdom of God is better than our own fortunes? If we are sacrificing worship, sacrificing the lordship of Christ in our life to pursue fortunes and to pursue identity and to pursue building kingdoms for ourselves. Hypocritical Christians, not just Christians who say that they believe and that Jesus has made me from a sinner to a saint, but who lives in, in rampant rebellion. Not just those hypocritical Christians am I talking about. Hypocritical Christians who say that Jesus is enough and live like he isn't. We are the laughing stock of the world. Because we say that Christ is one thing and we live as though he's not. Listen, Pharaoh, God told Abram, he said, you will be a blessing to all the families of the world. And Pharaoh's household, a great family in the world, is plagued because of Abram's faithlessness. 
Because of Abram's sin, because of his deception, because of his lies, because of his self-preservation, because of his lack of faith, God ends up sending plagues on Pharaoh's household. That doesn't look like the families of the earth being blessed through Abram to me. Listen, the world is being plagued with disbelief because of believers' faithlessness. When the world is to be blessed through Abram's family, ultimately through the seed of Abraham, Christ the Lord, those who follow Jesus and say he is one thing and live as though he is not, are the result of the world being plagued with disbelief. Friends, brothers and sisters, there is a famine in the land. There's a famine in our houses. There is a famine in our churches. It is not from lack of food. It is not from lack of water or lack of money or lack of any good thing. It is from lack of faith. There is a famine of faith in the world and it affects us. It affects our churches. It affects our families. It is a lack of faith that God will be faithful even when life gets hard. And the world is watching. And the world is often unimpressed, not with us necessarily, but with Jesus. Because we've not demonstrated that he can be trusted to save us in this life, to save us in our circumstances. And listen up, if Jesus can't save you from your circumstances, if Jesus can't save you in this life, then he is powerless to save you in eternity. But even when we are fearful, even when we are faithless, listen to me now, even when you are terrified, and tempted to turn to all sorts of other things, even when you are terrified and you do turn to those other things, even when you are in the throes of sin and rebellion that you know you should not be in, even then, yes, then, yes, some of you this morning, even now, God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Even though Abram failed, God was faithful to keep his promises. God was faithful to restore Abram to his promises. God could have just walked away. Said, Abram, leave this land. Go into the land I will show you. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abram goes into the land and says, nope, I'm out. God could say, all right, well, See you later. Your loss. Would have every right to walk away. But God is faithful to restore him to the promise, to restore him to the blessing. See, Abram was not off to a great start. But the Lord is faithful. God sent plagues on Pharaoh and he learned the truth about Sarai. We're not told how he learned the truth about Sarai, but Pharaoh learns that Sarai is Abram's wife. And so he gives her back to Abram and sends her away and God restores Abram to the promise from which he walked away. And so in times of fear, when we find ourselves trusting in all kinds of other things other than God, when, when things in the world uh, seem to be more appealing than Christ himself, or, or when, we, when we feel like we need to look to ourselves to save ourselves, to help ourselves, 
In doing so, we take our eyes off of Jesus. Or we may look to Jesus and ask him to give us the things we really want. Lord, I need money. Give me money because money will save me. We won't say that, but deep down we believe that. We use Jesus as a stepping stone to get at the things that we really want. We paste his name on it, but it's still the world that we're trusting in. It's still our own agendas that we're seeking. But even when we fail in our faith, even when we're in the throes of failure, Jesus is faithful. See, Jesus is faithful where Abram and everyone else in Scripture and you and I were not. Jesus was faithful when we have been faithless, when we made a mess of the world because of sin. Jesus didn't walk away from us. Just like God didn't abandon Abram, Jesus doesn't abandon you. He came to you. He came to this world. He came into brokenness and into our sin to save us. And it's not as though Jesus lived an easy life. Like Jesus came to the earth and just lived this pain-free, worry-free existence. There were real times of fear in Jesus' life, but he trusted God. Like Abram, Jesus would find himself in dangerous situations. The religious leaders wanted to kill him. The pharaohs of Jesus' day wanted to kill Jesus, and Jesus could have saved himself. Jesus said so. He said, I can call to my father right now. He'll send a legion of angels to deliver me from this trial. Jesus could have abandoned the cross. Jesus could have abandoned our salvation. Jesus could have turned his back on us and saved himself. Like Abram abandoned Sarai to save himself, Jesus could have, but he was faithful. And instead of giving us over to sin, Satan, and death, Jesus gave himself to the cross to save you from sin and Satan and death. And even when Jesus was laid in the tomb, The disciples believed that he was the Savior. The disciples believed that he was the Messiah. The disciples believed that he was the one who would rescue them from God's enemies. And here he is in the grave. When it looks as though all hope was lost, when there was a famine in their land, the Messiah himself in the tomb The promised Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, dead in the grave. All of the hopes and promises of God laid in the tomb. All hope was lost except the one who laid in the tomb, defeated death, defeated hell, rose from the dead three days later, and has given everyone who believes not just freedom from sin, but power over death. And set us free from the wrath of God. Jesus has saved us from the one thing that we should truly fear. Jesus said, don't fear man who can kill the body and after he has killed the body can do nothing. But fear the one who after the body is dead can send the soul into hell. Fear him. Yes, Church, we don't fear man. We don't fear the world. We don't fear our circumstances. We know that there is one with power over the grave. We know that there is one who is alive. 
We know that there is one who wants to give you life, who wants to give you freedom from sin, who wants to give you power over your circumstances, who wants to give you power to endure your circumstances, who wants to give you power to remain faithful in your circumstances. Yes, church, look to him. Look to Jesus. He is the one who can save because not even death itself can stop God's promises. You have a savior. You have a hero over death. And now if you trust in Jesus, your sins, your failures are forgiven and you have power over sin and death. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. In the same way that God's plagues did not come down on Abram, did not come down on Sarai, but came down on Pharaoh's house, God's wrath has come down on Jesus so that he can restore his promises to humanity through you because of what Christ has done. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we didn't deserve it, Jesus saved us. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We can have confidence in God's faithfulness to come to our aid in our time of need because he has already done it. He has already rescued us in Christ and Jesus will be faithful. Now listen, I want to close with this before we pray. We're talking a lot about Abram and his failure. But there's somebody else in this story that is drastically impacted by Abram's failure. What of Sarai? And what of those of you in this room who have been failed by someone? What you are grieving today is not necessarily your own failures, though you know that they are there. But you are grieving the failure of one who is meant to care for you. You're grieving the failure of a parent, the failure of a friend, the failure of a leader in the church who is supposed to shepherd wherever that may be. Ezekiel talks about the wicked shepherds of Israel who fed themselves with God's flock instead of shepherding God's flock. What happens when someone you were following fails you? Like Sarai is following Abram. God called him. She's going. And Abram failed her. What of you? What of those of you who are grieving the wounds inflicted by another? God does not bless Abram's sin. God does not bless their sin. God does not sweep under the rug or minimize the wounds that have been inflicted by others upon you, the wounds of those who have led God's people astray. But just like Sarai, whose hope was not in Abram, your hope was not in that person. Don't let it be in that person. Don't let it be in that thing. Your hope is in Jesus. Your hope is in the Lord, that God will deliver you also.
that God will lead you also. God would eventually, through Sarai, not only restore Abram to the promises, but give the promised son, Isaac. Sarai would give birth, though she was barren, would give birth to the promised son through whom the Savior would come. Don't let your trust be in that person that hurts you. Don't let your trust be in the faithless Abrams of the world. Make sure today that your trust is in Jesus. He has saved you. He will save you. He will deliver you again. Put your faith in him. Father, we pray now that as we respond to the good news of grace in Christ Jesus, that you would empower our hearts to believe these things, to obey these things, to respond to these things. Lord, and I just want to pray right now that in this moment, as we confess our faith in you and trust you and look to you for salvation, Lord, if there are any wounds that have left unrepaired, breaches that have not been repaired in our lives, in our souls, Lord, these areas where we're tempted to to put up walls between us and other people and ultimately between us and you, God. We pray that you would gently, brick by brick, remove those walls and let us experience the grace and presence and power of your Holy Spirit in this place. We love you, Lord. Be exalted in our voice. Be exalted in our hearts and continue to transform our hearts so that we may follow you through a dangerous world, but cling ever tightly to the good news that Jesus saves. We love you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.